Uh, okay, so hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Chatter. Uh, today I am delighted to be joined by Sarah Hardyman from Free Speech Ireland, uh, an advocacy group, advocacy group uh, founded after they all shared concerns about the future of freedom of speech in Ireland. Uh, welcome to the show, Sarah. Pleasure to be here, Josh. Thank you for having me. No problem. Um, it's a pleasure to have you. It's a scary time, I think, um, for people who believe in freedom of speech. Uh, I think, um, you know, there's constant assaults coming, but this is this is one of the first ones I've really seen in, in legislation that that's so overt. Uh, mm-hmm. It's really, really weird. Um, and, and it kind of, yeah, like I'd mentioned, it's really gone under my radar until like a week ago. So um, why don't we start at the beginning? Um, who who was it that wrote and, and proposed this law? Sure. So the Minister for Justice is a lady called Helen McEntee. Uh, she's a member of the one of the government coalition parties and it was proposed by her, drafted by her, uh, spearheaded by her. But it's a bit more covert than that. It was actually a recommendation from the EU. They actually really are the ones driving the need for this bill. So why would the EU have such a strong interest in Irish free speech laws um, or restrictions on free speech, we should say. Uh, well, there's a couple of reasons, but primarily Ireland is going to become very important and probably already is quite important in terms of uh, internet use, mainly because the tech sector in Dublin specifically uh, hosts a lot of big social media companies. That's Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, you name it. It's got a headquarters in Dublin. Uh, we'll say, for example, the data protection laws that are Europe-wide, most people are aware of GDPR. Um, if you have to raise a privacy concern with tech companies right now and you're concerned that they're not adhering to that law, you're raising a concern with the Data Protection Commission in Ireland um, because they're regulating these companies. So we're sort of seeing the way that these companies, as big, powerful and important they are, as they are, we're seeing those. Uh, we're, see- we're seeing Dublin. We're seeing the Irish legal system becoming um, a forerunner of how these companies are going to be regulated and conducted, not just on an Irish level, but on a European and a global level. So we're seeing this happen with respect to privacy laws. We're now seeing it happen in the online arena in relation to uh, hate speech laws. So while this is actually being enacted in the Irish legal system, this will in effect be the European privacy law and set itself up as a model for possibly the, the uh, sorry, not the privacy law, but the hate speech law across the world. So not just the, the uh, hate speech legislation for, for Ireland or just for Europe. So it's about setting the precedent online to restrict speech online. And uh, this is the cleanest way to do it uh, from a European angle. So while this is being pushed through Irish Parliament, spearheaded by an Irish Minister for Justice, this is a European-led initiative. And that's a very dangerous uh, uh, angle for this, that the, the Irish people uh, have had no say in this legislation. They have not voted for any party to, to bring about this um, legislation. The parties in government in Ireland have no mandate to bring this in. So it's terrifying from that perspective. Yeah, it really is. I didn't like. I hadn't even thought about it in in that sense. In that, that it might be because of the 
yeah the the massive amount of like yeah huge tech uh tech companies that are, are headquartered in ireland obviously for your wonderful corporation tax um <laughs> rates and you know nice handles absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. yeah um it's it, yeah so before we get into like the eu being the pushers of this because i yeah i've got some really weird questions that i just i don't understand how this is compatible with some of the the eu constitution and, and charter of human rights but um what so what exactly do, do you want to lay out the what exactly is in the law that is is concerning um to, to yourself and, and to others who have been looking at this sure so we're looking at free speech first of all and what free speech is as a concept and we have I'm, I'm glad you brought up the european charter of human rights there because we've got two angles on this as a piece of legislation we firstly got the irish constitution and free speech as it's codified under article 40.6 of the irish constitution we also have the european charter of human rights article 11 i believe yeah yeah, yeah. so we we have all of these lovely governing principles but when you actually look at what is specifically written in those constitutional documents. It is not absolute free speech, it's qualified free speech. What does that mean? It means it's free speech, but to a point. If you look at the Irish constitution, it will tell you that it's freedom of expression and that's protected, but to the point that public order and morality are maintained. So it is not an absolute right. There are restrictions that exists on the books here. And also you'll see, if you look at the, the European Charter of Human Rights, that it's actually a similar restriction. Now, that can be for a lot of public good. We don't have absolute speech on the books in Ireland in our, in our laws, not just our constitution. We have the 1989 Prohibi Prohibition of Incitement to Hatred Act 1989. You've got similar legislation in the UK. There's similar legislation all over the world. It's so that people can't go out in the street tomorrow and name a particular group and say that everyone should go ahead and kill them because inciting that kind of, um, you know, genocidal, dangerous, um, you know, sentiment can lead to a lot of terrible, like that public uh, unrest, disorder, uh, danger, uh, lack of order, uh, you know, chaotic levels of things that would, would rival any 20th century genocide. So that is important. That is to protect people because we want to live in a safe society. But what we are talking about here is, is not that kind of a situation. Um, we're looking at repealing this 1989 Act, which is it's fit for purpose. If someone in Ireland right now decides to, let's say, name an ethnic group and try to get them killed by inciting a group to, to do so, they'll be charged under that legislation. And I don't think anyone in the public space is going to have an issue with that. They're going to try and stop someone calling for that sort of violence. But that's about violence. That's about threats to people's lives. It's about someone's personal, physical safety. We're just now getting to change what this concept of safety really is. And so that's what this new bill, this bill from 2022, it's the incitement of violence or, or hatred and hate offences bill. This is now changing all of these definitions, this idea of hatred and safety. It's a very different concept to your physical safety being in danger and it's conflating the idea of being offended or hearing things, having interactions that you don't like and you're feeling unsafe 
because someone has an opinion about something or about you that you don't particularly like. So what, what, what do we mean by that? Well, this legislation has a couple of protected categories, uh, including but not limited to race, colour, nationality, ethnic origin, religion, gender, sex characteristics, sexual orientation, disability. So that is a sort of a plethora of things that, you know, neatly fit into the identity politics that we're seeing in this time. So that's not a coincidence that these are sort of the additions to what what is missing from uh, the old act. This is neatly fitting into that. This is clearly what they're trying to do. They're trying to add these categories um, for the purposes of protection to incitement to violence. I don't think there's any issue there. But we're now seeing it go far beyond incitement to violence. Uh, a lot of this is about the perception that the individual has that they are being mistreated. And this can this goes all the way to to speech now. This is about online content, a meme that you might share or something like Pepe the Frog. Like that is now being conflated with something that was a, a concept that was designed to stop people from genociding each other. Yeah. So we've come a long way to the point that we're, you know, we're trying to stop people from getting killed. And now we're just trying to kill humor. Um, that That's how dangerous it is. And that's that's not an exaggeration uh, by any means that the situation is that dire. And uh, we have to really ask ourselves, why is something like a meme being subject to this sort of treatment? We can get into that if you like. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure we will. Do you know what's really, really interesting, right? is what mm -hmm. articles that I can find on this, right, that mm -hmm. mention the, the, this, uh, the, the part about um, possessing material that might be considered hateful. Um, mm -hmm. So the Irish Times article does have it, you know, uh, it talks about uh, Paul Murphy, TD from People Before Profit. And I saw actually, maybe we could play his, um, is this his? No, that's Ronan Mullen. Maybe we could play this actually. I'm going to share this with you. Um, because it's then the Yahoo article doesn't <laughs> mention a thing about that. It talks about, you know, the incitement of violence, um, the need to update. So the updates to the old legislation, um, you know, it talks about how people fear that this will be used to, you know, clamp down on free speech, but there's nothing about the specific, um, oh no, hang on, maybe I'm uh no yeah they don't really talk about the fact that you can be you know criminal you could be theoretically criminalized for possessing a meme that's not really mentioned in here funny enough right well uh, <laughs> yeah um, i could i could direct you to section 10 uh part 1a and it says that um a person sorry subject to subscriptions under various sections a person shall be guilty of an offense if the person prepares or possesses material that is likely to incite violence or hatred against a person or group of persons on account of the protected characteristics, with a view to the material being communicated to the public, whether by himself or herself um, or another person, and the person shall be presumed until contrary is proven to have been in possession of material in contravention to that subsection. So what does all that legalese mean? If you go back up to the top of, of section 10 there, I've just sort of skimmed part of it. They're basically saying that if you are likely to incite hatred against a group and 
the, you you may have a view of communicating it to the public. You may or may not be doing so. That you could be making a comment about sex characteristics. I think that's the topic of the day. You are now you are now subject to conviction under this legislation. So we can see activists like Kelly J. Keane uh, talking about her concern around uh, transgender people in bathrooms. That's a particular concern. That's a legitimate concern for anyone to have a free and open discussion about. But if uh, lobby groups and all these other interests that are very well, in particular in Ireland, very well funded through the non-governmental sector, which is being paid for by taxpayer money, mm. um, these institutions are now carrying this enormous amount of wealth and clout and uh, have the ability to, to lobby for this kind of legislation. They've also played a hand in making sure that the characteristics that are in this bill pertain to them as well. Mm. It's one thing, again, I, I think it, it, it's worth mentioning, violence is one aspect, but the idea that someone will dislike you or disagree with you or not think that your classification mm. as a as a uh, you know a transgender person means that we can't have a discussion about what you should or should shouldn't be able to do uh, in in the broader uh, you know conventions of society. I mean that that's absolutely terrifying. That's what this legislation is is aimed at doing. I mean the I mean the thing is in in some senses as draconian as this law is, it's arguably a lot more dangerous in the UK because you've had people who've been. Uh, visited, including Kelly J. Keane, um, by uh, the police over tweets. I went to a rally where an English woman living in Northern Ireland was visited by UK police because a transgender male on Twitter had a scrap with her, online scrap. And this is the difference. We're conflating physical violence with online interaction of people who, who disagree with each other. This particular woman was a lesbian. She's a mother. And she was talking about uh, childhood sexual abuse that she had herself been subject to. So she's extremely protective of her children in public spaces like bathrooms. And she's also concerned about men who are transsexual having free entry into that space because anyone with any common sense knows that someone who is maybe not transsexual, but predatorily minded will absolutely take advantage of that law in order to access spaces that we know and have an unwritten rule around our spaces for children. And that's women's bathrooms is one of those spaces. So these are conversations we have to be able to, to permit in our society. Um, and we're not even going to get the chance to defend those positions now. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, you made a very good point there is that in in many of these cases, like in, in, and I think you could probably say in the sense of uh, the people who have uh, written this law, um, as well as in the sense of people who feel they would like to use the women's bathroom. And it's just like, it's not the one, it, it's never the people who will act in good faith that you're worried about. Because I was reading the, the, reading the, the subsection two here of the, of the, um, of the bill. And said, in any proceedings for offence under this section, it will be the offence to prove that the material concerned consisted solely of a reasonable and genuine contribution to literary, artistic, political, scientific, religious, or academic discourse. In a, re in a reasonable, normal world where people are all good faith actors, you're fine. There's no, there's no room for concern here at all, right? And in the same sense that, like, 
if someone's like genuinely transsexual, I don't think they're going to use the bathroom for some sort of predatory nature. But in both right. in both senses, the the problem is not the people who are acting in good faith. It's how those laws or norms can be exploited. Um, yeah, for for the gain in whatever sense that may be of the person attempting to exploit it. It's it's about the exploitation of things rather than the people who will act in good faith. Um, because, yeah, I often try and remind myself that people aren't horribly evil, or at least not all of them. Right. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? You know, it's you're it's, complete. Yeah, you're completely correct. And could could I add to that, Josh? Because you're raising an interesting point there about good faith actors and bad faith actors. If you look at the reference made in the Irish Times article today, I read the same one as you, I believe. The there's a discussion around genocide, and that's why I think this is a particularly interesting angle to bring up. You're not permitted to have any kind of discussion on it as an issue. So let's talk about the Irish famine of 1845. You will find plenty of academic commentary where people do say there's lots of reason to believe and plenty of anecdotal and even recorded evidence that this was an orchestrated genocide to destroy the Irish people. Many mainstream academics will disagree with that opinion. But if I was an Irish academic and I held that position based on a, book, a set of evidence and you're a British academic and you completely disagree and you're going to present all the evidence to tell me it was a famine, not an attempted orchestrated genocide, why aren't we allowed in the spirit of acad academia and discourse permitted to hash that out? You could be jailed if you were a British academic or of any, <laughs> of any nationality holding that position in Ireland when this legislation comes in. You can't have a discussion on a historical event like that. Now, we all, we all know the other circumstances that, the, that this is likely more so directed at. But the point is that we shouldn't, we cannot really say we're in a democratic and free nation if, we, if we're going to restrict historical academic discussion. We simply just can't do that. And that, that, is a, that is a conversation on the Irish famine that exists in academic books. Are we now going to go into Irish libraries and start burning Irish history books? It's, it's genuinely part of the discussion. Um, so, so who knows? Who knows where this goes? Who, who knows what can and can't be said? And, you know, I'll, I'll go to the quote of um, an earlier speaker that uh, came to one of our events. We talked about uh, disgusting discourse, things that are considered socially beyond the Overton window, not worthy of discussion, things that deserve to be decried, be the events of history, things that should or should not be questioned. And the truth is, if you are someone who is going to hold through to, to despicable discourse, so things that should not be up for being questioned, for things that belong in the bucket of conspiracy theory or basket case or whatever phrase you want to give it, we have a historical record in society of people, you know, being sort of cut out of polite society for, you know, positions that are not helpful for things that, you know, or, you know, ostracize you from your wider community and your wider family. We are conflating a lot of issues that relate to sort of manners and behaviors. And we're trying to say the state should come in and be the nanny and the dictate of these issues. And that's where we're failing with all of this. It's a terrible response to moving our culture and our discussions to the internet. And that's that's the problem that we're facing, is that we, we need to sort of 
decide a new etiquette and a new set of manners for online discourse um, and not have a nanny state step in and tell us what's valid academic discussion versus, you know, what's, you know, we, we have a new Overton window to set. But yeah. let's face it, we, this isn't about artists. This isn't even really about academia. This is about getting people online with a program around identity politics, around a set of thoughts that the, the government is prepared to sign off on and anything that is not in the sort of thought bucket, uh, they're going to tell you that's a thought crime. And that's what this legislation is about. It's about reading you into this concept that you should be afraid to have certain thoughts and by default silencing you. Yeah. So how are you free in, in that kind of a situation? You've just reminded me of a, an article that a friend of mine sent me not that long ago, and I'm going to have to find it when during this. But it's it, anytime because I can listen to what you're saying here, right? And and in my head, I can be like, I agree, but it might sound quite hyperbolic or like like I don't know, you know. Sometimes whenever whenever people are talking about this, including myself, like I sound a little bit like, oh, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, right? And then, um, then I remember cases like Count Dankula. Right. <laughs> right. And you're just like, yeah. if they put this in law, that stuff only gets worse. All right. Here's the article my friend sent me. Um, woman guilty of racist, uh, snap dog rap lyric Instagram post. So she posted like a lyric from some song on her Instagram and was, uh, fined as it was a hate crime. Mm -hmm. Wow. Uh, it's just I mean, it, yeah and 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 yeah like like i said every time i i go that that thought goes through my head it's like you know maybe are we being too you know are we are we worrying too much about this is this like not the big deal that people think it is and then you see shit i remember stuff like this and i'm like they would use any excuse to any shut excuse. down political opponents uh, and there's no way that they don't don't um that they don't exploit this even if even if like leo varadkar or um, any of the current like crop of like leading politicians in Ireland are like, no, we sure. would never do that. Like, you don't fucking know who's coming down the road. Like, <laughs> yeah, like, like, absolutely. They're told that all like the, it's like uh, like liberals who were super anti Donald Trump. It's like, would you want him to have this power to say that's hate speech? You know? Yeah. What if like <laughs> or or Rishi Sunak to in in the UK to be able to say. Oh yeah, you know that criticism of the government, hate speech. Sorry, yeah, it's it's this law. We got to take you away. You know, yeah. it's and, and and I don't trust any of them to 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 not exploit it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean it's already begun. Um, you know, we, the the bill has existed in this form since, or sorry, it's slightly amended now, but it exists. The first draft of this was published in November of last year. Within about two or three months of that, um, the interim minister for justice, Simon Harris, talked about the idea that migration status instinctively should be added as one of these protected categories. Why did he bring that particular issue up? Right now, Ireland is facing a severe homelessness crisis. It's been an issue for nigh on a decade at this stage. Mm -hmm. We also have a massive um, influx of migrants seeking international protection. So it's compounding what is already a state failure. Um, maybe under normal circumstances, the protection service would be able to do its job, but the system is simply crowded. The Irish homelessness list is crowded. The uh, social housing list is crowded. It is an unmitigated disaster. It is 
the uh, universally acknowledged failure of the Irish state. So, so it's so bad that the uh, the Irish president, you know, shouldn't really do this in his constitutional capacity. But he did come out and make a remark and said this is a huge failure. So, for those of you who are not based in Ireland and who are listening to this, I cannot stress how much of an issue this is. And people are looking at it and saying, well, can we review the uh, the extent to which we're giving out visas, the legitimacy of some of the people seeking international protection, because these are compa- these are factors compounding this issue. And the government is already trying to silence this because it's easy to dismiss the people saying, can we look at the migrant crisis uh, as, oh, those people are just being racist. It's like, no, you're, you're monumentally failing your electorate. So, you know, this this is already beginning. And that's the most dangerous thing. Like we can we can talk about personal opinion. We can talk about memes, but we're not going to see our artists be targeted. We're going to see people who pose a threat to the state. This is about government. This is about ensuring that uh, the people are afraid and the people are compliant. And that that is the entire point of this legislation. So we're already seeing that. Uh, begin. I'll just give you two other interesting statistics from uh, Ireland and just to show how unpopular this is. Uh, there was actually a consultation, a public consultation held on this issue and uh, 73% of the people at the consultation were concerned about this bill um, in the form that it was being proposed. And in 2018, we had a national referendum on uh, the blasphemy laws, and that was actually defeated at the time um, that, by 65%. So the Irish public are not looking for further speech restrictions, um, which is, you know, a, on a personal level, it's great to think that people are aware and concerned about the concept of restricting this. But if you look at the members of our parliament, you're seeing a group of people who are completely ignoring uh, the, the Irish people. So that's where the real danger lies, is that those who are in power are going to use this legislation to absolutely abuse their power. And, and uh, you know, to me, there's one word for it, and that word is tyranny. Yeah, it's it's really, really, really concerning. I mean, so the... the and one of the things that, that you've brought up, I know, hang on, let me get up the... get up your thing. So, yeah, so uh, 65% of the Irish electorate voted for the free speech um, for free speech in the 2018 blasphemy referendum. That's right. And then it says that 73% opposed the government proposals for hate speech legislation in 2019. Um, and then you shared this fantastic video, which I'm going to play um, for people um, because I think it's really important that we listen to what Leo Varadkar had to say about this. Your government conducted a public consultation regarding hate speech laws where citizens were asked to give their thoughts on the issue. And out of the thousands of responses from private individuals, over 70% were not supportive of such laws, and yet you're proceeding with them anyway. So my question is, why did your government bother to do a public consultation if you were just going to ignore the results? Well, we do public consultations because we think they're, they're good practice. Uh, it's a way to um, find out what people's thoughts are on, on issues. Um, and it's also, you know, a way to flesh out and highlight some of the issues that we may not have considered. Um, but we're also, you know, why is the fact that uh, the vast majority of people 
don't make submissions to public consultations, we have to bear that in mind. It's only a small portion of the population that participate in these things, so it's not necessarily reflective of public opinion. Uh, and also we're wise to the fact that very often uh, submissions are organised and campaign groups will organise responses, so uh, we're clear with that too. But, but why hold why hold the consultation if the, the end result is just going to be disregarded on the basis that it's not representative of public opinion? What's the point of it then? Well, well the point is that we're a democracy and in Ireland we have elections and decisions are made by the government and the elected parliament. They're not made on photo public consultations or opinion polls. That's not what they're about. Um, they're about testing the temperature. So is, so is it just for show then? No. Wow. <laughs> just wow. Uh, you know what's great is that we can laugh while we're still free to laugh well, <laughs> about this yeah. stuff. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I mean it's uh, yeah worrying. I think is the 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 least that I can say about it. It's and like like this this is this is like a constantly recurring theme over the past four or five years. Is like laws being passed that were not in manifestos that nobody asked for, and suddenly like this is government policy, and and it's. Do you think people have a sense that like what they're voting for is no longer actually what's happening? Yes, I would say that the average Irish person that you talk to is incredibly cynical about our political system, and they should be. What you witnessed with the uh, success of this bill to get through the first house is the power of the NGO sector in Ireland. So that's the non-governmental sector, non-governmental um organization sector in Ireland. They get uh, funding to the tune of about six billion a year and they form a plethora of special interest groups. Um, in, you know, and, and that's how they've managed to get their uh, particular classifications into the protected categories of this legislation. So that's that's why they can ignore a consultation like this. Um, if anything, it allowed them to gauge the temperature to see how popular an idea like this is. It clearly is unpopular. Yeah. I think that's going to change with time. Um, at least knowing how unpopular it is gives them some sense of how they should sell it to the public or make it palatable in the event that they need to. But with the changing, uh, I guess, you know, how would I put it? The society we're in right now has... Um, you know, a, a generational crossover. So we're seeing people who would have lived most of their lives online uh, now coming into the voting pool in the next general election, which is going to be within the next 18 months in Ireland. Um, they experience life online in a way no other generation has. Um, they're going to be more comfortable with these things as protections of you know, life online, let's, let's classify it as that. It's going to be sold well to them. Um, and I think that, that means that legislation like this will be secure into the future. So they're less, I think they're less concerned with older generations who can see this for what it is as just like, you know, um, an absolute infringement on their freedoms. Um, but, you know, there's, there's another, you know, I can say a younger generation, an online generation, a generation that's going to maybe utilise um, the, their rights under this bill, um, they're going to be comfortable with it. So they're it, it, I think it will succeed uh, once it passes and I don't think it's going anywhere. Now, we could talk at length about the, the avenues that are available to us. It's still not the law. It's not the law yet. Um, we have challenges that we hope to make um, if, we, if we need to. 
um, as an advocacy group, we are looking at at certain options that uh, may be available. Um, but we're taking it step by step. We're going to see how it performs in the Senate. And the um, once a bill passes through both Houses of Parliament, uh, the president could refer it to the Supreme Court to test its constitutionality. Um, there's circumstances in which other parties can do so. So who knows? You know, right now we're the only public uh, advocacy group that is wholly opposed to this bill. There are other groups that are maybe in part, but more often than not, like I say, the NGO sector is the powerhouse behind this uh, bill. They're coming out in favour of it. They're going to try and, and make sure it, it succeeds. So, you know, we, we're trying to put up a fight as much as we can. Um, but it seems like it's it's difficult to to challenge. And if, if I was to like lay uh, blame at the success of this bill at any particular group of people in Ireland, I would I would pick on the journalists as a as a class of people in this in this country very very squarely. Um, they're a group of people, particularly the National Union of Journalists, who during the troubles. Uh, and before the Good Friday Agreement, uh, fought for the concept of free speech to allow uh, IRA terrorists like um, Jerry Adams uh, speak. Uh, you know, you may be aware of the Broadcasting Authority Act, Section 31, if you're familiar with that. Uh, Jerry Adams was never allowed to be on air in his own voice. His voice was dubbed, I believe. Uh, there were other... Um, parties at the time I think maybe Martin McGuinness and others would have had been subject to the same restrictions and the journalist union specifically advocated for the man to be heard in his own voice now the IRA and Sinn Féin uh, again we, we talked about we've talked rightly about violence in this discussion because it is important to, to talk about this in the context of, of a free speech discussion we talked about genocide we talked about war and and uh how things can be historically portrayed. Uh, this, this is the real sort of precipice of that, is to discuss what's the validity of someone, you know, be like listening to an old speech of Hitler's. You can still access those online. Should yeah. they be suppressed or should we be free and open to hear pure evil? Truly. I mean, I've no problem listening to to anything and, and have the, the good sense to assess the good or the bad of it myself. Um, where is this union of journalists? Where are they on a, a on a matter like this uh, when they would have appeared, you know, thirty years ago to have been a, champ a group championing free speech, and rightly so. Um, it's their job; they're the fourth state. So, you know, it's it's disappointing uh, looking at them. I'm going to quote Elon Musk and say that those who are creating these laws could live to see them turned on themselves, yeah. and. Uh, if there's anyone who should be calling that out, it shouldn't be uh, a tech entrepreneur. Um, it should be it should be the journalists themselves. Yeah. It's their job to to play their role in protecting free speech, and sadly, they failed monumentally. Yeah, but I mean, I guess that's because journalism has has gone from you know trying to break stories that challenge the the powerful institutions in our society into telling us what the narrative is. And that's that's why the people who are currently journalists don't see this as a problem because they're so used to just well you know we're gonna say whatever's because we we're the you know the the arbiters of the truth here and therefore if we yeah. say it we couldn't possibly be prosecuted for it you know um, yeah <laughs> yeah which is yeah. which is which is a sad state of journalism um, unfortunately um, 
So yeah, so the bill the bill passed the, the doll by a vote of 110 to 14. That is a disgustingly large majority. Who were the people who actually stood up and voted against it? Sure, I'm looking at the list here. So oh, it was on my screen a minute ago. So you'll see uh, Richard Boyd Barrett, Paul Murphy and Breed Smith. So they would be all on the sort of left end of the spectrum that uh, voted against it. But again, it's not that they in principle have any issue with the restriction on free speech. This simply just isn't their bill. If this got passed, they would be proposing another one in the future that would be more in line with their particular set of values. What we're looking at in the form of uh, the the vote and, and to see how dire the situation is, we're seeing a collection of independents We're seeing Padder Tobin. Uh, He's a leader of a political party called AIN2, which is a centre-left party. Pretty socially conservative on some issues, but he's the only sitting member of that party. So uh, I think he's the only non-far-left party that has a party candidate that voted on this. Mm. The rest, I believe, are um, uh, independents. I think there's there's a... maybe another people before profit TD in, the, in that group as well but you're, you're looking at independence one's one centrist party with one member of the doll and then the rest are a collection of independence um so yeah it's it's so dire it's Fina Gale, it's a reflection of a broken Fall, party system so Fina Gale, yeah. Fina Fall and Sinn Féin all were just like yep absolutely yeah wow. and it, it's it's a sad reflection of where we are. I mean, Sinn Féin are almost certainly going to be the next uh, government party, possibly single party uh, governance in, in the next election. Um, and, you know, it's the People it's in the ironic. South, they don't know what they're like. I know they've yeah. been around for a while, but I mean, I just, I don't think that you've experienced the sheer levels of incompetence and hypocrisy that we have seen in the North um, from <laughs> <Yeah>. Sinn Féin. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, I, uh, you know, I, I'm uh, no, no stranger to the north, and I mean, I, I know this. This is the scary reality: is is what uh, what they what they could mean for for our governance as a as a nation. Yeah. Um, I also now don't want to join. Yeah. Like, I was ne- I was never a massive United Ireland, you know, fan. I like the mm-hmm. money we get from the British government; it's great. But like, <laughs> this is the ultimate reason to not want to join the Republic of Ireland. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, no, I, I absolutely valid criticism. Um, I mean, it's it's just it's just ironic on on too many levels. They've been, uh, you know, I, I I don't know where to begin with with them as a party and what they stand for. But I don't look at them and see a Republican party in in any respect uh, from from the ideals that they certainly began with. You know, they've diverged, and it's it's hard not to look at the entirety of um, this issue and other issues and just see EU dictation to be Sinn Féin, Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and everyone just getting on board across the board, um, particularly with an issue like this, when you can't see any viable opposition, any concern, um, it's it's truly terrifying. It's when you, you look at the party system in Ireland and say it's broken, it's kowtowing to another interest when your political class are doing one thing and your electorate are telling you by consultation telling you by referendum they want something completely different we're proposing no alternative you you i don't know how you could claim you have a democracy yeah well i'm not really sure you could um unfortunately yeah 
Yeah. Um, like, so you've said that this is like handed down from the EU. Um, mm -hmm. Is there like specific things like in EU proposals, like directives or things that make you say that? And do you think that this is a, they promised retribution to Elon Musk for Twitter? <laughs> like, and you know, is this it? Yeah. Is this, is this the beginning of said retribution? Just like the, cause uh, it was like, they were like rubbing their hands together last, last year. I remember a couple of different EU politicians right. being like, well, you know, you might have free speech in America, but that's not the way it's going to work in Europe. And they just like, yeah. <laughs> normally people who used to say things like that were considered horrible awful people <laughs> right um oh yeah i know it, it's it's uh it's concerning to say the least to watch a, a democracy conduct itself in, in those terms but no it's not it wouldn't be accurate to say that the must take over or uh you know even the you know no, even in the early days when he, he was saying, I'm going to buy Twitter, like it, this uh, as legislation was first proposed like that in 2019, that consultation group, it began then. Uh, it never became a bill. It was just a proposal. So the elements of this have always been on the table. And I look at the timeline, I would say things like the privacy legislation, GDPR, was was much more of a trigger for this sort of thing just for whatever my opinion's worth i'm looking at it uh strategically and i i see that strategy i say that they've set up the privacy protections so that people feel somewhat comfortable around how they're interacting online they're they're interacting with tech companies they're they're uh disseminating information sharing you know political interactions you know it happens in the online arena as much as anywhere else and giving people a sense of ownership of of themselves and and what is rightfully their their voice and their opinion and their and of course their private communications mm. that's all well and good now we're looking at this legislation it's saying that there's you can be that you can be in possession of something that is deemed hateful or offensive and you don't even have the intention to share it mm. i would say that could be reasonably interpreted as something sitting in a draft email and it could be Count Dankula's dog doing a salute. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. why not? Like, well, it, see, it sounds I'm like a ridiculous thing to do. You know, I'm, say that think again. I'm thinking more. We could flood. <laughs> you could flood the email addresses of all the people who voted for it with the most disgusting dank memes that you've ever seen. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and oh, then try and prosecute them all for it, and no, be like, "Aha! Just... You see, we got you." <laughs> That's actually. A, a brilliant idea um that's hilarious because you you would love it you could say i can prove i can you're, i'm going to jail but you're coming with me yeah, right? no, li yeah literally you'd be like well it was my <laughs> yeah. meme so fair enough but you have it in yeah. your computer i saw it i sent it i know it's there come on yeah. you're all Absolutely. going to jail with me <laughs> yeah i mean that that to me is the scariest part because the only thing i can compare that to in real life like jokes aside is child porn possession of personal use no intention to disseminate all you have to do is have it on your person and, and the legislation is black and white. You end up uh, prosecuted, sorry, sorry, convicted. So that's that's the danger. That's actually, you know, we <laughs> thank like I say, thank God we can laugh at it right now because it yeah. seems so ridiculous. We're not going to be laughing when we're looking at um, Soviet style, you know, oppression of speech, because I think there's there's no other there's no other event in history I could compare it to. I don't even know how you police some of this. 
Because what if someone's scrolling Twitter and they see something that can be considered hate speech? Like if it's on their screen at that moment, is that then? Yeah. Is that have? Yeah. So, so um, unfortunately, um, I don't have like a whole lot of time left. Um, but uh, the last question that I wanted to to ask was, um, do you think this law will pass the Senate? And is will it will it become law basically? And what can people do if they want to fight back and try and you know lend whatever support they can to attempting to make sure this doesn't happen? That's a good question. I I would say, for my opinion, it will certainly pass the Senate. I don't think that there's uh, much like the doll. There's not enough political opposition to this. Um, that point after the Senate and before it would be presented to the president for signing. That's our window of opportunity. What I would ask people, wherever you are in the world, this could this could affect you if you use any form of social media, particularly if you use it within Europe. You're likely using it, um, and you're subject to the rules that are set at Twitter HQ. That's in Dublin. Facebook HQ also in Dublin. All of these major social media outlets, Google, they're all based in Dublin. So if you are concerned about how your data is being managed, the laws that, that those companies are being subjected to, the Irish system is the system through which these companies are being governed. I'd ask you to please follow us on social media. Please promote, retweet, like our content. The more we can do to get the, the word out there, the better. It's, it's the most we can do right now. We'll take every stage that we can go through this with and see, you know, as it progresses, what options are available to us. We may see if if that involves uh, challenges, you know, to the government, maybe more petitioning, maybe, uh, you know, looking at, at legal avenues that are available to us. We're certainly open to whatever future the fight could take. But if people were prepared to to just lend us at least our online support, share our content, it's what you know, allowed us to get so many inquiries from people such as yourself to talk about this issue, to make people aware. And and people should be terrified. People should want to do something about this. And look, we're just an advocacy group. We're little more than that. We're a bunch of people who've just come together to try and do this and raise awareness. Yeah, the more people involved means that there's a will to take it further. And if we can, and if we can put up a real fight, we're certainly not afraid of that. But uh, in the meantime, it's as grim as it looks. It looks like it will pass. And uh, putting up a real challenge, it's, uh, it's going to take a lot of effort and, and uh, I think, investment. But I can promise you at FSI, we're a group of people that are really hungry to do whatever we can to, to make sure we can challenge this as successfully as possible. So please, please support us online and, and please keep up to date with uh, what, we're, what we're sharing. Yeah, well, that's fantastic. Um, I will put the link for your Twitter and stuff in the description below for people so they can find you and for uh, for the website as well. Um, so, yeah, Sarah, uh, I, I wish we had more time, but uh, it's been brilliant to chat to you. Really, really informative and, and a lot of fun as well. Lovely. Thank you so much, Josh. Thank you for having me. No problem. Hey, everyone. Thanks for making it right the way to the end of the podcast. I love that you tuned in this long. Do me a favor, hit subscribe because 80% of you bastards are not subscribing, but you're watching my videos. See you next time.